two-story county The Mustang still runs free Eagle soars above the pinion pines And we know these horses stand for something That is precious and more rare Than all the silver and the gold from them old mines So let them run Hi, welcome to Horse Sense 101. I'm your host, Joe Jones, Vale, Oregon's resident redneck and owner of Joe Jones Performance Horses. Horse Sense 101 is a podcast dedicated to helping you have a meaningful relationship with your horse and for them to be a willing partner in all your adventures. The podcast is available every Monday morning at 6 a.m. Mountain Time, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to join us on our Facebook group, Horse Sense 101. You can also find the podcast link, calendar, and news about our upcoming events on our webpage, www.horse-sense101.com, and sign up for our newsletter there as well. And if you have a moment and are so inclined, please leave a review on Podchaser. It's free, and I would really appreciate it. This week on Horse Sense 101, I have the honor of speaking with Mr. Larry Rose. Larry is the trainer of more world champion reigning horses than anyone in National Reigning Horse Association history, and his name is synonymous with the word champion. His list of accomplishments includes being an open NRHA Futurity all-time top 10 money earner, NRHA Derby all-time top 5 money earner, and NRHA top 10 all-time open rider. As a boy, Larry Rose loved to ride good horses and hated to walk. Not much has changed over the years. Today, he still loves to ride good horses, but if he had to own or ride a mediocre one, he says, I'd rather walk. Mr. Rose, thank you so much for making time this evening. Larry, with Larry, me. not Mr. Larry. Rose, Larry. Okay, Larry, I'm going to do that. I- I, I was I was raised by a man that said you know, respect. I know. So, so I appreciate the I appreciate getting to call you Larry. Um and and so you know when when my listeners, you know, they, they may or may not know uh much about reigning, but if you know anything about reigning, Larry Rose's name is synonymous with world championships. Sir, as I understand it, you've won really everything there is to win and reigning and then won it a couple more times. Um, so it's truly an honor to have a man of your background. Uh, if we're going to learn about reigning, we're going to go to the very best here. So I appreciate you being my guest tonight. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. So let, let's, let's just start out by, by getting, letting everybody get to know who you are. And I'm, I'm certainly curious because you and I've never met, but, um, your family life growing up, we, uh, were you raised with horses, Larry? Well, not <laughs> kind of a kind of a strange deal. I was uh, when I was about five years old. My parents were driving, and they had a little horse walker with pony rides there. And I got them to stop. I'd never been around horses or anything. I got on this pony and they couldn't get me off the thing. They kept having to pay this guy. 
I can still remember the smell of it. I really like the smell of equines. So, uh, I started having them get me horse books and horse magazines and stuff like that. And, uh, my dad was a, uh, very intelligent man. He was raised in an orphanage, never had anything, and put himself through school, hustling through and working in Toledo glass factory. But, uh, they, I think he bought, he, he bought me a pony when I, or a horse, spider horse, when I was, uh, eight years old. And I'm pretty sure he bought it for me because he thought it would keep me out of trouble. He knew how much interest I had. So it was a, about a 14 three hand, normal looking spotted horse, kind of quarter horse looking. And, uh, I had a little ranch training, turn a little bit, stop a little bit. And, uh, from the time I was eight till I was, uh, 11, I rode him probably an average all year long. Uh, I would say six days a week, probably an average of six hours a day. And there were a lot of times it was about 300 acres of undeveloped land there. And I'm, I, a lot of times I'd ride him for 10 hours. I had saddlebags <laughs> and my mother would have made a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and potato chips. And I had a bottle of drink with me and I took off riding. <laughs> I don't know why they let a kid do that, but they did. And uh, I was pretty clumsy when I was a kid, but I'll tell you what, after three hours of riding or three years of riding like that, I got where I was an acrobat on a horse, <laughs> not the only place. But so then uh, I had bought, or I had read all of Monty Foreman's books and uh, Adeline Sykes and uh, Matlock Roses and my dad could tell I was getting even more interested. And, uh, he had an office in, uh, besides Mansfield, Ohio here. He had an office. He had five offices. But anyways, he had one down in, uh, Kingsville, Texas, believe it or not. So he asked me if I wanted to go with him. I was, uh, 10. And I said, sure. So we went and I had, I'd, right for all the horse sale catalogs and everything. And going out, he started asking me about this one catalog that I kept reading. And I told him, I said, well, there's a horse in there I'd sure like to have. And uh, he never said I, yes or no, or anything. We went down to Kingsville. He did whatever he had to do. We didn't go to King Ranch. And uh, coming on our way back from there, when going through Texas, he said, where is that sale that you're so interested in? It was in uh, Hinton, Oklahoma. Just across the Texas line. So he said, well, we'll go and watch it. So we went there. They had all the horses tied out and whatnot, and everybody could walk around. There's this two-year-old gorilla stud that I just love, and uh, he saw me spend a lot of time around him. He said, that's the one you like, huh? I said, yeah. He said, well, we'll see what he brings. So make a long story short, he brought $1,400. He unbroke two-year-old stud. And we had no way of getting him home, so he went to Stidham Horse Trailer Company, about 10 miles from Hinton. We had a station wagon. He had them put a hitch on it. He bought a Stidham two-horse trailer, and we hauled him home. And uh, we were keeping my paint horse in an old bank barn. Had It had four or five stalls, so we put him in a stall. And uh, I'd read enough about breaking horses and stuff. He said... To me, you know, he said, now we're going to have to get somebody to teach that horse how to ride. And I said, well, 
I think I can do it. He never said anything. So next day when I went down to the bar and I messed around with him and I can't remember exactly what I did, but I, I got him saddled and I got on him with a hackamore, kind of a big old rough hackamore. <laughs> and uh, I just trained him from everything in the books. And I forgot to mention about a year before that, my dad had a client that he had to meet in Columbus at the Ohio State Fairgrounds. They had a horse show going on there. And I saw this event that really interested me. I really, it was really different and really exciting for me to watch. And uh, there was about 14 or 15 in it, and they lined up on the rail, and they came out and did this pattern. And uh, one one guy, he was except, exceptionally good at it. His horse was stuck, stuck, stuck out, and uh, I really, really like his when he was done he won it when he was done i followed him back to the stalls when he put his horse away i can remember i waited till he left and i went over and i looked at that horse and i thought to myself boy this must be a smart smart horse to be able to do all that stuff <laughs> i didn't really realize that the trainer was 50 percent of it or more too the guy came back while i was looking he just looked at me and said hi and i said hi and uh, I walked away. I was kind of shy of him. It was Dale Wilkinson. So, uh, anyways, then there was another trainer named Leo Barbera. He won the world HUHA pleasure and raining and cutting. He lived about 20 miles from us. So I started, my parents take me over there one or two days a week and just sit and watch him ride. He was a nice fellow and uh, got to talking to me a lot and helping me. So I trained that Grula horse and, uh, in September of that year, I got my dad to take me to the first AQHA show, and I showed him. It's a 12-year-old kid now, okay, 12-year-old kid on a two-year-old stud, and I was third out of 29 in the AQHA Junior Western Pleasure. So my dad thought, you know, it's pretty good. This kid's getting good. So he, about two weeks later, he took me to one in Delaware, Ohio, and, uh, I believe I was second out of maybe 22 or 23. And one of the last shows coming up was a show in Washington, D.C., the Washington, D.C. International, which was a very big, prestigious show. At that time, they held the finals. They held go-rounds in Maryland, and the finals they held in uh, Washington, D.C., in downtown Washington, D.C., at the D.C. Armory. So that was all a great adventure for me, and I was... uh Lloyd Jenkins from Texas judged it. He showed a lot of great halter horses, and he was a showman for the King Ranch. And uh, I didn't know him from Adam. But anyhow, I won the eliminations out there in Maryland. And the only thing I remember about that is I thought to myself, this guy must be an awful good guy to let a kid win that deal with. There were, you know, Doc Wade and Billy Dickerson and all those guys were showing. So then we had a cavalcade to downtown Washington, D.C., to the armory, you parked underneath where you rode. It's a strange deal. And they had this thousand dollar pleasure stake then, and ten of them showed in that. And I, had, I had funny looking chaps with yellow pockets on them, <laughs> and old saddle. Probably my hat was shaped worse than anybody's. And uh, my horse went real good, I thought. Anyways, they blow this trumpet and all that crap and rolled out a red carpet. I won the deal. And Ethel, I remember Ethel Kennedy and uh, Arthur Godfrey gave me the awards. Holy cow. <clears throat> the only thing I can remember was 
they put roses and stuff around him. They had two or three like trophies they gave you. The only thing I can, and I won $320, which I gave to my dad for taking me out there. But anyhow, the only thing I can remember about the trophies and stuff was it was a bowl and I was disappointed. I, I wanted a trophy with a horse on it. You know what I mean? Sure. So I was a boy wonder. And, uh, you know, that was 60 years ago. And I can't, I don't have a clue what I did to train that horse other than I'd read those books and somehow I figured out something. But more than anything, that horse had to be one of the greatest minded horses to ever live. And, uh, subsequently, uh, we had a couple calls about breeding to him and, uh, we didn't know anything about it, but there was a guy lived down the street named Kelly that, uh, he bred a couple outside mares and we bought a couple mares and you know how that goes. It all started growing. And so I had five or six of those every year to break. When I was, uh, 14, I had the world champion AQHA trail horse. And when I was 15, I had the world champion AQHA western riding horse. And when I was 16 and 17, I concentrated more on reining. And, uh, 1969, that's all in the record books. 1969, I had a daughter, Nifty B. These were all by Nifty B himself, okay? Who I subsequently, after that Washington DC International the next year, I won a lot of reinings with him. But in 69, I had a daughter, his Nifty Della B, and she was world champion AQHA reining horse in 1969. I took her to 60 reins and I won 52 of them. And whenever I was out west, and I was driving myself, I had an El Camino and an inline trailer and that mare in one stall and feed in the other stall. And, uh, my dad was Matlock Rose's, uh, accountant. He was, he was always getting in trouble. <laughs> Not a very good man with money, Matlock. So, uh, you know, I'd go out with my dad, whatnot. So I, I knew him well before this. And so in 69, whenever I had to lay over, I'd lay over at either Kenneth Galleons in Bentonville, Arkansas or, uh, Matlock's there in Gainesville, Texas. And, uh, when I was at Kenny Gallion's, you know, I got to know Jody Gallion, his son, and uh had three sons, and I can't remember the other one, trains pleasure horses, Gil Gallion. And one of his clients was uh Sam, uh oh, the guy that started Walmart. Sam Walton? Sam Walton. And Kenneth was taking, uh, and he told me he hated doing it, but the guy was a nice guy, and so he let him do it. He was taking about 25% of his training money and stock in this new company that that uh, Sam was going to start. And I got to know Sam a little bit, and he uh, asked me if I wanted to go down and see his new building. I didn't, but I told him, yeah, so I went with him. And it, it was just all concrete then. They didn't even have the roof on it yet, but he was telling me all how it was going to be this way and that way. And that was where the first Walmart was, was in Bentonville, Arkansas. And I believe, yeah, that would have been 1970 or 71 when I looked at that building with Sam. So anyhow, that kind of turned out all right for him. Yeah, he had turned out better for Kenneth Gallion. <laughs> <laughs> he had a crap load of stock. Fact is, I talked to Jody and I are good friends. Your son, he's one of the cutting fraternity and stuff. Anyhow. Yeah, Jody, Jody's one of the one of the absolute best in the business. For well, he's he, he. I always kid him. He, he's probably the the best cutting horse trainer sire too. You know, I mean. Well, there is that as well, right? Oh, there's five or six of his relatives that have won the cutting fraternity. <laughs> it's kind of like being a riddle. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyhow, when I was 20, okay, I had to, then I had the world champion 
pleasure gelding when I was, uh, well, I was 22. And in 20, in 1974, I had the world champion two-year-old Haldemar. And in 1975, I took a real good yearling sled to a show and showed under Larry Myerskopf, who was a real good judge, I thought, and, and still do. They put me third in a class of about six, and the two ahead of me were just dogs as far as I was concerned. And I thought, you know, I'm helpless out here. I don't like this. I'm going to quit. I'm going to just ride nothing but rain horses. I'm starving to death anyhow. I might as well starve to death doing something I really like. So through all this time, were you riding... Were you riding your own horses or were you riding client horses? Well, by, by that time, I was, when I was 12, I had five or six outside horses, mostly just problem horses or two-year-olds to break for somebody or something like that. But uh, by the time I was 19, I had a waiting list. <laughs> so, so there was never really, there was never a question that you were going to make your living as a, as a horse trainer. That, that wasn't even a decision to be made. You know what? I, I, it was all such a great adventure, it never even crossed my mind. That much I remember, because everybody's always saying, you know, how did you decide? And I, you know, and it, it was it was something I wanted to do so bad and something I loved so much that I never I never thought about not making it or making it. You know, I just, uh, Failure I just never, all I wanted to do was get, all I wanted to do was get better at it every day I rode a horse. So was your your fascination with reining was that was that from that first show you went and watched? Is that I would imagine it. I would have to say yes. And, you know, I can't be positive about some of the stuff. Because <laughs> 70 years ago, I don't care how good somebody's memory is. It's pretty foggy back way back then. So a good, years a good ago. friend of mine says that he says at this point, I can say anything I want because there isn't anybody old enough left alive to, to tell any difference. So I'm the uh, one that I get to tell the story how I want. Well, they, they say that uh, I'm the old or I've rode ran horses for more years than any other professional and uh, i don't know if it's true or not who knows i don't know and i really don't care <laughs> but uh i went straight raining in 75 and i bought okay i had a horse named great pine in training that same year and uh the gent ron runner was the gentleman that owned him from canton ohio he'd showed him in halder and Won a lot of grands and beat, beat the two-year-old said I was showing a lot. But anyway, he sent same to me to get his reigning points for HUHA champion. Spent about six months training for him. I took him to two or three shows and won them. Had all the reigning points he needed. He took him home. I loved the horse. I mean, I'd, I'd never felt a horse stop the way he did. He, reigning horses used to tip up. They didn't, they didn't used to break in half and they didn't really sit down. They just kind of locked their stifles and they, it slid a long ways, but it was uh, kind of like the Mexican horses you see today, you know, where they run and stop a long ways. And we showed a lot on racetracks, and racetracks, they were standard bred racetracks, and they were hard as a rock with just a little bit of pea gravel on top. A donkey could stop 20 feet on one, so we used to have a lot of fun running, stopping 30, 40 feet on those things. But So Great Pine goes home. I'm... I feel bad about it because I really liked the horse, but I, I, I knew I didn't have enough money to buy him. So the next year, Ron Runner called me and said, I'm going through a bad divorce. He said, I need to get rid of that horse. You know anybody will buy him? I said, yeah. I said, I'll buy him a price where I can afford it. He said, I want 10000 Well, my whole lifetime, I, I, I was good at saving money. And I was living in a house trailer. You had to watch where you walked. You didn't fall through the floor. But I had 9500 in 
a savings account. I said to him, I'll give you 9500 That's all I got. He said, okay. I went picked him up. I was broke and had great pain. Didn't know why I even had him. Then I took him to the big rainings, uh, state fairs in Indiana, Ohio, Kentucky, Michigan, and New York. And I won all five of those. And I retired him on that. And then I started, oh, Renner had bred him as a two-year-old. And from his first crop, there was one named Tijuana Pine. He won the Congress Alder Fraternity that same fall that I was showing great pine. So the next spring, I'm starting to get calls, so I start running ads. But all I'm getting is halter mares because they, this horse won this halter fraternity. I'm not getting any performance-type mares at all. And uh, subsequently, he from his first crop was a mare named uh, I'm Great Too. She was out of a daughter of Skipper Jr. by Skipper W. Really good raining stuff. About as bad as it gets for raining. Good halter horse. But uh, if you could get it, if you could get them to rain around, they'd look really good doing it, right? Pardon me. I said if you could get them to ride around, all right, they'd look really good doing it because they're pretty horses. Yeah, yeah, they but would. not terribly talented as far as any of the Skipper W bred horses I've ever had around were. You know, they yeah. were nice looking horses, but not terribly athletic. Yeah, I I knew Jack Kyle, and he uh he trained all of uh Wee's camps Skipper Ws and. uh he told me the only one that was worth a nickel was Skipper's King, and uh, but they they were known as being uh, good halter horses. Some of them with pleasure. I doubt if any Skipper W. I doubt if all the Skipper Ws together ever won a nickel in NRHA or NCHA. You know, I mean they were they just didn't have any due to them at all. So I sold this mare to Paul Horn, and he subsequently was uh, reserve champion of the fraternity, and then the next year. He won the Open at the Congress. And then I started getting some performance bred mares because people thought if he can sire that good a running horse out of a Skipper W mare, he had to really do good with, you know, Raw King bred mares or Power Command or whatever. So uh, I started getting those. To make a long story short, when it all ended up from 1980 to 1990, he was the leading sire of running horses. Uh, by statistics, the quarter horse news at that time was, uh, keeping records. And then from 1990 to 2000, he was the leading maternal sire of rain and horses. And he sired a lot of the great horses that I showed, uh, great red pine who sired Einstein, who also, uh, Einstein sired Miss Tinseltown and, you know, just a lot of good horses. And I knew that line pretty well. And, uh, Certainly one of the foundation sires of the NRHA. He would, he would, <clears throat> yeah, he would be the foundation of, of what you would call modern day reigning horses. And he, and he added looks to him. You know, reigning horses used to be, if they wouldn't halter or pleasure or whatever, somebody sent them off for reigning. <laughs> we had some fairly ugly horses that we were showing, but like Hollywood Jack, big old flop eared, his ears flopped all the time. He had an ugly head on him. And, he had four crops that they used to kid. They couldn't turn around at all. Used to kid that trainer said, if you want to kill a Hollywood Jack, just turn him around without splint boots and he'd bleed to death. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's funny. <laughs> so anyhow, Richie Greenberg had him and whatnot. So somehow he got a hold of a great pine mare, Miss Dalpine, and her first colt was Jack's Little Pine that he sent to uh, Tim McQuay. And Tim was third in the fraternity way, I mean, gorgeous looking horse. It just grew from there. And then he had, Richie had me buy 10 daughters of Greek pine, the 10 best I could find. And those 10 mares made Hollywood Jack. Without, without Greek pine, 
you've never heard of Hollywood Jack. But uh, and if you go through the sire record on him, I don't know how much you know money's changed so much over the years. But I imagine his Colts won seven hundred fifty thousand, and I'll bet you they won six hundred fifty thousand of it out of dollars at Great Pine. So that's the Great Pine deal, and that. That sure pushed me along a lot, and it sure helped my cash flow a lot. I can tell you, I was breeding, I'm breeding 70, 75 mares a year. And back then, I think I, I stood him for $200. But you got to remember, back in the mid-70s, $200 was a lot of money. Yes. And 200 times 75 was a real lot of money. And I was making a lot of trips to the bank, and it, were, it wasn't for withdrawals, you know. <laughs> so he, he built my place. I had, you know, nice brick ranch house. And, Indoor arena. I think I had 50 stalls, three or four pastures and whatnot. He, he paid for all that and the prize money because I started doing good in these NRHA events. <clears throat> Excuse me. First time I did good, I was reserve champion, uh, on a horse called Great Simon Says. And it just so happened his mother was Nifty Della B, the merit I was world champion, uh, HVHA horse on in 69. I subsequently from then, you know, I just trained raining horses and showed raining horses and loved it and uh, won a lot and uh, never thought I was anything special for it because I was smart enough to know that there were a lot of people that were better at their jobs than I was at mine. You know, even GM workers, they're, they're smart guys figure out stuff. And I knew I was good at my job and that made me happy and that was it. But uh, I had thoroughly had a great life. I mean, I enjoyed the whole thing so much. I wouldn't change anything for fear it would change something else. Uh, I don't know why I got so lucky to have a, from the time I was eight years old until now I'm 73, something to do that I jumped out of bed every morning to go, go do it. Not, not lay there wishing I didn't have to go do it, you know. And right now I am training a horse for the Congress fraternity, which I've won five times and this horse he goes to great pine five times his name is great pine five brand circle five and he's an awful 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 good horse and he's i mean it's far enough long now it's only four or five months till the congress uh he's he's as good or better than any of the horses that i won the congress with so and when i get on a horse my time is just as good as it ever was so you're so, you're uh, back you're back to riding up for, for those that don't know you you had a a pretty serious accident uh, years ago, and that and and you struggled your way back to, from from not being able to ride to being able to ride. Is that correct? That's in uh, 2012. I was riding a two-year-old Wimpy's Little Steps, studding around pen of deep sand, and he stumbled and tripped, fell. I fell beside him, face down. He jumped up right away, and you know how they stick that front paw out and pull himself up. He Stuck his hoof on the back of my neck and pulled a thousand pounds on it. Broke my neck in four places and uh, crushed about six inches of my spinal cord. Fortunately, the round pen was just below the wash rack and there was one of the girls working for me was giving a horse a bath and she saw that whole deal. Ran down there. I couldn't breathe. I kept getting on there. Sit me up. Sit me up. She finally, she was scared to do anything. You know how it is. She sat me up and I could breathe. She called for an ambulance and they got me in the ambulance and I'd been hurt a lot of times. <laughs> Probably almost that bad, but for some reason I felt I was going to die. And, uh, you know, they got the attendant in there with you, taking your blood pressure and all that stuff. And I said to the guy, am I going to die? 
scared me to death. Guy never answered me. So I got to the hospital. And I remember I went to sleep. I woke up four days later. The doctor, the uh, neurosurgeon was there. He was talking to me. And the only thing I could move was my fingers about a half an inch. And uh, I underwent a 18-hour surgery at Cleveland Clinic uh, with a 50-50 chance of survival. Apparently, I survived. And uh, I was in Cleveland Clinic for nine months. And I finally got to where I could walk a little bit with a walker. And uh, they sent me down to a different rehabilitation place. And uh, they just had little, <clears throat> little steps. You'd go up and all kinds of crap. I didn't think it was going to work. So I called my secretary. I said, come get me. I want to go home. So she did, and we bought a walker to pharmacy on the way home, and uh, about five times a day, I'd take that walker, and I'd, I still had employees riding horses, and it, the outdoor arena was probably 2,000 feet from the house. It was rough going through that grass, I'll tell you, and uh, I'd go up four or five times a day to watch them, and kept myself moving, <clears throat> and uh, did all kinds of weird exercises in my in the house and whatnot and just kept working at it and working at it and uh, finally I had them get me up on a horse one day and I, I could ride. I had a cutting pen. I still had some cattle I was working a cutting horse and I had the girl that was my manager at that time uh, film it and uh, I sent that to the head neurosurgeon at Cleveland Clinic. Uh, Albert Temperman, I believe was his name. About six days later, this guy called me. He said, what did you do? How did you get in that kind of condition? I said to him, I wanted to. <laughs> right, yeah. He, want, he wanted me to write it all down, all that. And I, I I had no interest in that. Uh, since then, I've been riding two or three horses a day, five days a week. And uh, I have to have a mounting block to get, to get on. I can get off. People always say, do you need help getting, on, getting off? I said, no, why? I can fall off. I don't have any trouble getting off. So uh, that's what I do. And uh, so, so t tell me a little bit. I mean, there, there's. I, I think there's in in many people's minds, they don't understand um, fraternities and, and why why we do this with such young horses. What what is your opinion of of you know three year old, especially cutting and reining fraternities? Um, you. I, I, I think you'd have to admit it's good for the industry, but is it good for horses? And and how, what's your take on that, sir? Well, right now, a lot of guys are breaking these things when they're uh, 16, 17, 18 months old and riding. And uh, I don't, you can train a reining horse well if you know what you're doing in about 16 months. So if you start them in uh, July of their two-year-old year, you've got plenty of time. A lot of these guys start riding them in July or August of their yearling year, and they give them a month off now and then, and, you know, they end up having a walk, what I call a walking wheelchair. They're crippled, and they got to be injecting this and that and all the time. But uh, I never really had that much soundness problem, but I always just rode them out in the pasture lightly starting in July, some, some of them even in August, and then I was always careful with them when they were three-year-olds, but a lot of people think it should be a four-year-old event and all that. I don't think. I don't think it hurts a three-year-old if you don't hurt him. And uh, the other thing is, economically, people, I don't think they could afford to go that route that many years before they started either bombing out or getting some kind of a refund on their entry fees. Because it's not, it's not like we'd wait till they're three years old to start them. They'd get started at the same time anyway, right? I mean, we, right. we would just ride them longer before the security. That that that's exactly what would happen. You know, horse trainers 
Horse trainers are underpaid, but owners pay too much for training. I don't know if you understand what I'm saying, but. Well, well I think I do, but. It's, it's a bad situation. Horse trainers aren't getting paid enough for what they do, but owners are paying too much for, it's too expensive for the owners and it's too expensive for the trainers. So most of the trainers are living from day to day. You know, I don't know. There's four or five guys. Uh, I'm not going to mention any, but four or five guys that are good with their money and, uh, they're millionaires and it, you know, they. Well, and if you're the best in the world at what you do, it, it's not unreasonable to think that you should be well well compensated financially, right? I mean, well, why, why wouldn't the best reigning horse trainer in the world be uh, financially set? Who is? No, I, I would I would like to know. I mean, the best software engineer, you know, the the Bill Gates has done all right by being the best uh, software guy in the world. You know, it's not. I, I don't think it's unreasonable to think that the that maybe the best reigning horse trainer should be you know, comfortable for the rest of their life. If if they if they're the very best in the world at what they do, there should be some sort of a reward that comes with that, right? Yeah, I would I would say though that from the time reigning stop and I, I think it's probably this way in any business. I would say the top two to three percent have always been able to live comfortably. But for the last thirty, thirty five years, the top two or three percent could live any way they wanted to. You know, Sean Flaherty, you heard of Sean Flaherty? Yes. Yeah, Sean's a good friend of mine. You know, I mean, this guy's is 52 now. He, I'd say when he was 45, he was worth five or six million dollars, you know, and he didn't come from, he didn't come from money. He made that money, you know, so yeah, Randon, if, if you're in that top two or three percent, you're set. And I think, I think the cutting's that way. And I think, I think most any business is that way. I, I don't care whether you're an electrician or a plumber or a carpenter or whatever. If you're if you're really good at what you do, you're going to get compensated for it. And if if you're pretty good at it, you're going to get kind of compensated for it. And if you're just average at it, you're just going to lead an average life. So you know, looking back, I I think it's pretty much the same. And no matter what you do, I guess my my only observation with with clients is is that I, I think I think they that horse owners would pay a fair price for their training. But I think, I think horse trainers have a hard time understanding their work. Does that make sense? That, that they don't think, I think humility comes with being a successful horse trainer, but if you're too humble, you won't, you won't stand up for yourself and, and, and be paid for it. Do you, well, do you think that goes on? I'll tell you what goes on. There's three things you have to do to be successful as a ran horse trainer. Number one is win. Number two is win. Number three is win. All the rest of the stuff doesn't mean anything. You know, they, these younger trainers are buying these big rigs for a hundred thousand dollars and they have stall decorations and all those stuff. And yeah, I, I never saw a judge for a mark them go out in the parking lot to see what they were driving, you know, before you score them. They spend more money on stuff that they don't need than what they do need. And as a result, they're making a lot of payments and living better. It's a tough life for most of those guys, but it's it's their own fault. You know, I mean, they're just not good with money. And all these horse colleges, all of them that I know of, whether it's Lamar in Colorado or Finley College here in Ohio or what used to be Meredith Manor, they teach all them kids, boy, you got to have this kind of trailer and you got to have this kind of barn. you got to have an indoor arena. Shoot, I didn't have an indoor arena the first seven or eight years I was training outside horses. I, I had to ride. I had to ride out in two foot of snow in the winter. Yeah, it's not it's not like Florida and Ohio, right? I mean, 
wintertime shows up there. Oh, there's a lot of, lot of weeks that never gets above 10 degrees, you know. <clears throat> I'll just bundle up and go out there and ride it. It's like anything else. When I'm an active rider. I'm not a passive. I'm always doing something. And, uh, you know, after, after you get in that first cold saddle and get to moving around, I've been out there where I got down to my t-shirt. <laughs> about the fifth or sixth horse. So, but, uh, the, the bottom line is you can't afford all that stuff, but you don't need all that stuff. What you need is to, if you have enough passion for it, go for it. And if you don't do something else, because you're going to end up doing something else anyhow, you know, you're going to end up being a greeter at Walmart, <clears throat> uh, with these. I had a kid the other day come up here for some help. His trailer was 40 foot long, six horse trailer with 11 quarters. <laughs> I think the kid was 23 or 24 years old. I, I didn't even ask him what he's payment for on it, but you know, so, <laughs> Six horses, and he's he's only got three that are capable of being shown. <laughs> so I kind of get a kick out of it because, well, back when I was doing it, everybody was pretty frugal, you know. I mean, of course, they, they didn't lend money like they do now. But, yeah, true, true. Yeah. But it, so so if, you know, you're gonna, if you're going like, to win, you got to have the right horse, right? I mean, if you're going to win, 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 you have to have you have to have a horse good enough to win, and you have to train him. And you have to keep him sound. Um, so let's 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 examine that. So a good horse. When if you're looking for, you know, if you're if you go, let's say you go looking for yourself, and you go with one of your clients to look at prospects. What what is your process for evaluating a, a prospective horse to be trained? Or do you well, even get involved with that? There's one. There's no way of looking at one and telling. If you could look at one without a saddle and somebody riding it and tell Standard Oil bought all the good ones and put us all out of business a long time ago. And uh, Dick Peeper, he had that trapezoid theory. I don't think it worked because he rode more junk than anybody I ever saw. And uh, <clears throat> I think the papers, I look at the papers, and if there's good horses in there, I'll turn them loose in a pen. I'll make them change directions a couple of times, make sure they're naturally, and I'll get out in front of them a couple of times when they're loping. See how they hit that ground and turn around. When they turn around, whether they raise up or whether they stay down, <clears throat> that's about all you can do. You know, and I always told my customers that, you know, I know you like this and I know you want to do it, but I'm going to tell you before you get started, your odds are better in Vegas. Not only that, you'll have fun losing your money out there. Right. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you're, you're only as good as the horse you're riding. I mean, if a 73 trainer gets a 75 horse, He's, he's going to go above his level of competency. Once you go above your level of competency, you become incompetent. So you can only train a horse to the level that you are. You know, it, it takes a 76 horse trainer to train a 76 horse. Now, a 73 trainer can train a horse to 73 and win or place well, get good checks if he's smart enough to know his limitations at that point in his career so i would say it's i would say it's about a either a 60 40 or 70 30 combination and the horse is the highest higher number than the person is okay so so once you've made your selection what what is and i'm not going to ask you how to train a reigning horse but is there is there like a progression that you go through you know this is the first team thing we teach them this is the next thing we teach them what what is what is your progression or what is the what is the foundation that you build your reigning horses on? Does that question make sense? Well, the question makes sense, but the answer wouldn't 
and uh, rain, raining is it, it's a science done in an artful way. <clears throat> and what keeps a good horse trainer going is he's like an artist. That artist always thinks he can paint that next painting just a little bit better. But as far as basics, you know, it did take me five hours to even get well into the basics. That uh, I mean, you know, backing up, turn around, turn around slow and easy, and stopping three or four feet, and just getting all those basics real solid. And, uh, so basically, your your basic maneuvers of a reining done slowly and correctly is where you begin. That that's that's basically it. And the best horse trainer is the one that can make his idea the horse's idea. Like. <clears throat> Excuse me. When I put a turnaround on a horse, I only work on one side at a time because a horse can zero in a lot better than if you're, then he's going left to right and right, left, left, right. I'll spend a week and I'll start walking circles until by the end of the week I've got him down to where he's, say I'm going to left. He's so left oriented by that time that he'll start wanting to make a step on his own. So what I do then is I just let him make a couple of steps and gently move him out. And uh, you, you always keep perpetual motion. A, a lot of trainers, after a horse turned around, they stop him all the time. And what happens there is the horse gets, when he's spinning, he gets to looking for that stop. He gets to quitting on you. So what I do is I take them a few steps and I'll build on it until they'll just, I call it, crawl around themselves slow four or five times. And I'll do that for maybe another week that way. And then I will uh, go back, go do the other side. And then when I come back to that first side, I'll pluck a little bit and get it just a little bit faster. And once they know how to spin, I'll walk those circles until they come, until I'm down to that small circle. And when he goes to wanting to turn around, I hold him out. I don't let him turn around. And then I'll, I'll walk that small circle again. He'll want to turn around and I won't let him turn around. My theory is I, I do most things on the third time. The third time I let him go ahead and turn around. Well, you know, you always want what you can't have. And if, if you do, and that's just one example of maybe a hundred that I do in my program so that the horse actually trains himself. So he's he's doing these maneuvers because he wants to, not because you're forcing him. I'm building that desire. You, you listen, a hundred and fifty pound man can't force a twelve hundred pound horse to do anything and make it look pretty. <laughs> it's ugly. <laughs> and there's a lot of it out there. But anyhow No, mine all do I build that I build that desire. You know, it's a lot easier to build desire in uh, in a stop because, you know, you stop, you can sit there. Another thing is you never work on turn around and stop the same day when they're young because turning around is building motion and stop is taking motion away from. So, uh, so how, how do you keep this? How do you keep all these maneuvers interesting for your horse? How, how do you keep them from getting bored <clears throat> with walking a circle? Well, you know, raining, raining's a mad made game and it, it logically it doesn't make, you know, it, a spin has no use, and a side and stop has no use. You know, it's just it's exciting for an audience, and it's become a sport that way. But horses don't understand rain, and uh, I don't I don't think any of them like it. But if you do a good job, you've got one that doesn't dislike it. And if you've shown him through the training that you like him, he'll get to liking you. And out there under pressure, sometimes they'll even help you a little bit. But as far as liking it, I, I don't think they do, but they need the exercise. You know what? I always tell people a horse 
Somebody brings him his fortified meals twice a day. Every day somebody cleans his room. When he's hot, somebody gets a fan for him. When he's cold, somebody gets a jacket for him. When he needs new shoes, he doesn't have to go shopping. Somebody comes out and fits them for him. And I can go on and on and on. You don't live that well. I don't live that well. If he can't give me an hour of his undivided attention a day for living that well, there's going to be a problem. So, Fair enough. And I'm I'm not talking about cruelty. I'm just talking about he's going to know I'm I'm not real happy about the situation. <laughs> he's going to get rode a little harder, and I might spank him once or twice. You know, not any harder than you'd spank one of your kids. Well, you know, that that's so that stuff's all in the fairness back. Fairness is really a big deal. Pardon I mean, me. Fairness would be important to you as a principal. You're 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 fair. You can you can you can ask, but you're not unreasonable. No, no. You no, wouldn't no, ask no. a horse something to do something that they don't know how to do and be mad when they didn't do it. Well, the, the only time you can punish a horse and get results is when he does something wrong and he knows it, it was wrong. You know, it's just like yourself. You know, if somebody gives you crap for doing something you didn't do, you can get hostile. But, you know, if you're guilty of it, you'll pretty, mu pretty much take what they're going to give you and a horse the same way. You don't punish a horse for being wrong. You punish a horse for being wrong when he knows he's wrong. That way he won't, he won't get mad at you and, uh, and you end up having a bad relationship. And that happens a lot. I mean, there's a lot of green trainers out there. When a horse does something wrong, they, they, they can't read a horse enough to tell whether he knew the right thing. You know, does he have to do the right thing 15 times to know what right and wrong is? Or does he have to do it 150 times? Or, and they're all different, but you have to be able to read their minds and know that they know what they're doing. And then when they misfire, they know they were wrong. But the relationship between the rider and the horse is extremely important. If he doesn't like you, he'll get even one way or another. I'm not talking about kicking you, but he'll get you in the ring. But if he likes you, he'll try to help you and he'll last forever. That's why I've had uh, 29 world champions, 19 more than any other reigning horse trainer and some of them still winning money when they're 22 and 23 years old because they never get to disliking it and shorten out because they've been trained their whole life to tolerate it in a pleasant way is the best way i can say it so so it would be fair that if you if you turned one of your horses out in the pasture and after he was done eating if you went out to the pasture you wouldn't have to spend all day trying to catch him no he likes no. you so he'd probably come up He'd come up to see you. Sure. They're my friends. And I've, I've sold a lot of horses that I would have liked to have kept. You know, I had no stud horses. You know, I, I one stud's all you need. But anyhow, I didn't want to sell them, but it wasn't logical. So, And the money was good, so I'd, I'd sell them. But they were my friends. But I always would say to myself, no matter how long that horse lives, I'll always be his best friend, and he'll always be one of my best friends. Nobody will know that horse like I do, and nobody will know me like that horse does. And I tell you what, I've, I've gone in the stall with one six years after I trained him and hadn't seen him, and they knew me. I could tell they knew me. And, yeah, I, I, I don't know, I don't know how many people can appreciate that, but it's, you know, I, I remember years ago, I, I started a, I started a Skipper W horse for this, for this, uh, lady here, here in Idaho, and, and got him, got him riding and got him gentle and, and I sent him home and she turned him out with a band of about 20 mares. Uh huh. And, uh, the next, the next summer I went back to, to visit with her and, 
we went out, of course, to look at the mares and look at the babies. And and so I took my uh, I took my rope halter and walked out, and I caught this horse and I jumped on him bareback in a halter, and we loped in with his band of mares. Yeah. Well, and you know that to me, I don't think he, I don't think anybody else in the world could have done that. With no, that but he, enjoy, he enjoyed your company and he trusted you. So I think that relationship with horses is very um, important. It, it makes my, it makes my heart glad to know that, that someone of your stature and someone of your accomplishments has that heartfelt love for horses. And it's not, it, it's, it's, and it's a, it's a key component to your success, most likely that relationship with those horses that, that sets you apart. I think, you, you I think, think that's a fair statement. I think you're 100% right on that, that. The relationship is extremely important. And I'm going to tell you something else. Horses are a lot smarter than people think they are. A lot smarter, especially horses today. You know, we've, we've been breeding domestic to domestic so long and good to good. You know, again, the, back up a little bit. The mind is the whole, most important part of the horse for training, you know. Uh, and I, I'll take I will over IQ anytime. You know, a horse. You can have a smart horse, but he doesn't want to do it. He, he's hard to train. A horse that's willing, I can take him a lot farther than a real smart horse that's not willing. But the great horses are real smart and real willing both. That's, that's the key to that deal. But, uh, <clears throat> they're a lot smarter than we think they are. I'm going to give you an example. How smart is man? 2,000 years, we've all drank the same water and breathed the same air. And we've yet to find a better way of settling disputes and killing each other. I mean, that's barbaric. <laughs> you can't tell me that if uh, somebody hired 20 geniuses like Lee Iacocca, how he saved the car industry or the Ford or whatever, uh, put 20 of those guys in the room tell them they're going to get fed and water there and stay there until they come up with a better solution than killing people. It wouldn't take very long for them to come up with a better solution. You'll have to admit, you know, like what's going on today over there. It's barbaric to do that to people. Goodness, yes. Right. You don't see horses doing that, do you? No. I mean, that's something that, that I, I guess one of the things I love about horses is, is if there's a dispute, and I, I do, I spend hours watching horses. Right. And if there's a dispute, they handle it, and it's done and over with. That's and right. And, you know, we sit there and watch that, and we watch that mare you know, kick, kick that, you know, the lead mare, kick everybody off their food. And we think, yeah, they must just hate that. But I'll tell you what, you walk out there and you take that mare out of the pasture and you just watch whatever, what all the rest of those horses do when that mare leaves. I mean, they will lose their ever loving mind when you take their leader away. Right. Um, Because, because there's order and there's discipline and, and there's, and there's consistency and love in that relationship. That, that we can't see, but it's there. I promise you, it is there. But you don't see them killing each other. Nope. No, it's it's dealt with, and it's done and over with, and they don't hold a grudge. Well, that's what I say. You know, there's a lot of ways of being smart. That's why I think a horse, in his way, is smarter than a human being because he, he doesn't do as many bad, drastic things as human beings do. Just because he can't talk doesn't make him stupid, and I think that's where a lot of people... Think horses aren't very smart because they can't communicate verbally with you. But horse, if you get a good horse that you like and he likes you, it's constant communication from one to the other. Yeah, I, I, I really, I mean, if I can do anything in this, in this, in this world, is if I can help people to realize and understand that 
um, that, that there is that, that is truly the magic in my mind of horses is that there's, there's that, that majesty that they can teach us and that example they can set for us if we can just learn to pay attention to it. Right. So on the subject of teaching, do, do you, do you give, do you give instruction, Larry? Do you have non-pro clients that come to you for instruction? Um, do you have to deal with that, with that no. pain of existence that many trainers don't care for? Or do you do no, that? No, but what I do is I do coach the better trainers all over the world. I, uh, three years ago, I went to uh, nine foreign countries and 22 states, coached 56 trainers, the better trainers, and help, help them put the finish on their horses. And when I got off my last jet in December, it was my 51st jet that year. And, uh, you know, I get, I get paid for it and all my expenses and I got, and I've been to Europe two or three times now, well, three or four times now. I enjoy it, you know, seeing the different sites and the different, uh, ways people live. And, uh, I just enjoy traveling all over like that. And, uh, I would never do that again. I was three sheets in the wind after, <laughs> after doing that much. But, uh, I, I've cut it back to where I probably do 10 or 12 trainers a year now. And just go and be an on-site consultant. Pardon me? You would, you just go and, and you're basically, you're an on-site consultant. You go, you go help them with their program right. for a little bit. And... Yeah. And a lot of them are really, you know, some of the top trainers, but, uh, four eyes is better than two and, the, and a different opinion is better than just having one. So a lot of times, most times, almost all the time, I see something that they didn't see that they're missing. Well, you, that one thing, thing I know, there's a big difference. difference between what it looks like and what it feels like. Absolutely. And if you're doing the riding, all you know, for the most part, is what it feels like. Right. And, and there is video, but... Well, one of the things that I was going to mention that uh, has hurt more than it helped is cell, cell phones, video, just everything videos. You're always having people video what you're doing, and then you watch it, you know? Well, you're not learning to be able to feel it because you don't have to feel it. You can look at it on that thing. Well, you know, you're out there more times than not without somebody videoing and you don't have any feel now. So that, that today has got to be a big problem that people are too reliant on video and then they end up where they can't be reliant on themselves. So, so, so what's overdoing. your, I'll, I'll look at video on something, but I might. I might look at it once every two months just to see if the position's exactly like I thought or if I'm going to see something I, I might have missed. You know, I don't care how good you are. Uh, you miss stuff all the time. And, uh, I always figured I allow myself since I'm human to make mistakes. And I always figured on a good day of training, I hit 90% of what should have been taken care of. You know, 51% progress. 90% I think is about as good as, as the human mind at this point can do in horse training so you have to allow for mistakes or miss sites that you have to go back and clean up but you have to be smart enough to know after a few days that you missed something that you're going to have to go back and clean up but you can't beat yourself up for it because and a lot of people do that they say well i i'm stupid i you know that, that's humans at this point but i think that's the best you can do when you're training a horse so, so when you're helping somebody out and and you know let let's say they're they're late administering a cue. How do you go about helping somebody with that? Because I, I mean, I was raised and have been had given lots of lots of help with the 
there, did you feel that? You know, and, and at the time they said that, you know, whatever we were working on had already happened. Um, so how, how do you help your, how do you help your students find that right timing? What, what is it I just reputation or what, how, how do you go about that? I never tell them that they're doing something wrong or they should do this or they should do that. My terminology always is, you know, if I was doing that, I'd do it a different way. I'd do it this way. Whatever way suits you best, you go ahead and do it. Well, they're going to try what I, what I suggested. And if I was right, they're going to like it and they're going to use it. If I was wrong, they're going to stick with what they got. So, all I, you know, <laughs> they're not paying me to go out there and beat them up. They're paying me to go out there and help them. You can't make somebody learn something. All you can do is suggest it and they either take it. It's like fishing. All you can do is cast it out there and offer it to them. You have no control over whether they take it or not. Sure, sure. But, but are you, are you, let, let's say you're, you're, you're helping somebody you know, with their turnarounds. Um, are you, are you trying to offer, offer coaching after the fact or real time or do you present ideas and let them figure it out? Well, I watch them work horses and sometimes I'll say, I'd like to sit on that horse for a little bit and I'll work the horse in a little bit different way and they might like seeing the results I'm getting and they might not like seeing the results I'm getting. If they like it, they're going to take it. If they don't, they're not going to take it. But they're, they're open-minded or they wouldn't be paying me to well, right. come, come help. Right. They know. want to learn and you wouldn't be there. Yeah, but you know, we're all different. We all think a little different. We're all built different. We all move different. Some of the little things I do might not fit somebody. That's why I don't say, you know, you need to do this, you need to do that. I, I just say, this is what I would do. And, uh, I do it after the fact, you know, I mean, I, I don't give them speeches on what they should do because they might already be doing. I don't, I don't know exactly where some of them are until I see them work a horse. You know what I mean? Okay. Right. Yeah. And then from that basis, I go on and if, if whatever I saw I liked that day, I don't, I don't say anything, but you had a good day, you know, and the next day might be different. So, so, so personally, um, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing you've had people help you. What, what's the best compliment you've ever received? Has, has anybody ever said something to you that really meant something? I mean, not like somebody said, hey, you look nice today, but, but somebody that you thought a lot of recognized that you did something well that the average person wouldn't know you wouldn't know how hard that was. But, but somebody you thought a lot of said, you know, Hey, Larry, that, that was, that was pretty special. And, I know nobody else saw that, but I did. Has that has that ever happened to you? Yeah, one time. Uh, well, a lot of times. I get, you know, people are going to give you a compliment, but I consider the source. Because uh, sometimes it's just smoke, right? I mean, yeah, they mean they mean well. I won the Congress I mean, security on a horse called Amos Amos, and that was the first time a random horse ever got a standing ovation at the Congress, and. Uh, Bill Horn at that time was my biggest competitor. I had an amazingly fast backup on this horse. Long, fast, crisp, slack in the rain, and his head down. When I came out, Bill stopped me, and he said, Did I hate that? I said, What? He said, That trick. He said, It's a trick, and it's a gimmick. And he said, It has no place in rain. But if I had it, I'd use it every time. <laughs> That's the way Bill 
made his point, but what he was saying was he really thought that was great what I had that horse doing. Sure. And it was a horse, the horse, I, I know one of your questions had something to do with this. The horse taught me. I mean, he, it was natural for him, so it didn't take much encouragement to get it fancy. And yes, horses, good horses will teach you a lot if you listen to them. Yeah. And that, that was, that was one of the questions I wanted to time permitting. I know I've, I know I've taken a lot of your time and, and, you know, I, 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 I'd go at this all night, but I know at some point you probably got to get rest, but I mean, yeah, let's, let's talk about that. So that, that's one instance where, where a horse, a horse may have changed how you kind of how you thought about doing the backup. Is that, did that horse kind of give you some insight into how horses think and, and were you able to apply that with the other horses or was that just something he figured out? Well, you know, when I was teaching him to back up, you know, as they progress, when, when they reach what I think is a real good point, I quit trying to advance that maneuver, okay? But this horse had no end to, to his backup. And I, once I recognized that, I thought, if he likes doing this that much, I can probably make this pretty fancy. So I, I you know, I started doing it without rain. I'd start him and pitch him away and he'd still do it. And I'd, I'd start him and pitch him away and I'd tap his shoulders and he'd, put his head down while he was doing it. You know, it just kind of led me led me through like that until uh, it was a fancy deal. But I, after that, I didn't think, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to go ahead and put this on every horse I got. Well, you know, it was a type of deal you can't put on every horse you got. But it got me where I could recognize if a horse was capable of doing that, how to go ahead and get him finished doing it. And so is that, is that, I mean, when I was young watching raining, when you did, when you did the turnaround, there, there was always kind of, kind of a, you'd rein them in the direction you wanted to go and that rain pressure would stay there. Now I, I see a lot of raining horses today. They'll, they'll get them, you know, they'll get them initiated into the spin and then that hand comes back to a neutral position and that horse continues in the maneuver until the rider says stop. Is that kind of the same? idea behind that that you were using with your horse to back up that once he got going backwards you didn't really have to tell him to keep going uh or am i missing I, something there i don't well as i progressed i mean from 1995 or six on i'd start him and always get my hand back in the center but there's a lot of guys today you know they they ran them pretty hard some of the better trainers for speed they'll roll their spur up and down the outside as they're going and it doesn't it doesn't they get them to where it doesn't change their cadence but it makes their cadence <coughs> a lot more active than it should be it's it's kind of a mess it's kind of a correct mess okay and if i was judging i'd mark it but i don't like it i want the horse doing it on his, his own but i want to have taught him to teach himself to do it on his own i mean i've got those things pretty brainwashed when I show them, and if you take one of mine uh, after I fully trained it, you can't turn it out in a pasture with four or five horses. It's not a horse. It doesn't know how to be a horse anymore. You got to turn it out with one horse for a while and let it get used to it. It takes about a year for them to get back to being a horse because I, I take most of everything out of their subconscious and it's in my hand. You know, horses are herd animals. They're thinking way out there. I want them thinking way back here. And when you get one trained to think way back here, he doesn't think like a horseman. So his his every move is is at your is I had to hate you because it's probably not the right word to call it control, but 
really you you direct every bit of their motion, right? I mean that's kind yeah. of the, the yeah. beauty of reading is that that horse is doing he's not doing that because of any other he, he stops at four turns because you say we stop at four turns, not because he's done. Right. You know, in the rule book, Jim Jim Willoughby wrote sixty years ago the best horse is the horse that's uh, I forget exactly how he worded it. it Follows follows the rider's directions, but the biggest part in that paragraph that helped me was he said any movement on his own must be considered temporary loss of control. Okay, right. And if you live by that, it helps you a lot of the horse trainer. Like if I'm sitting on a horse talking to somebody and he takes a step forward, I pick up on my range and back him up. You know, I, I don't I, I don't want him making any motion at all on his own. Now that that sounds kind of contradictory. I'm trying to think how to word this so could be understood. I don't want him taking any action on his own, but yet I want him to do it on his own. Okay. In other words, once I ask him to do something, I want him to do it on his own. To have the confidence but, to go ahead. But I don't want him to do anything on his own until I ask. I can watch somebody get on a horse and walk at 10 feet and tell how broke he is. You know, I, I go to look at a horse, the guy gets it out of the stall and saddles it up, gets on it. And it's fresh, you know, it's fresh. So it, it's walking fast, maybe trying to break into a trap. That thing ain't broke. Broke horse, you get on him, he walks off like he's walking on air. He, he's waiting for your permission for just about every step because you've taken his mind away and put it in your hand. Well, and, and that's the artist. Complicated, right? isn't it? <laughs> it, it? It is. I'll, ne I'll never forget that I, I, I asked a, a friend of mine who's a pretty good, pretty fair working cow horse. Uh, trainer. Um, and I asked her, you know, how do I, how do I teach my horse to spin and, and change leads? And she said, well, you don't know enough for me to answer that question. <laughs> she answer. was right. I don't. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm a cutting horse guy. And so, you know, lead changes are best left to people that can actually get a horse broke. Wasn't quite um, Cushing, was it? <laughs> no, it was, it was Annie Reynolds. Um, and, and you know she's right. Yeah, uh, I, I, I'm not. I'm not competent at at that sort of stuff. Um, but I do appreciate. I do appreciate the artistry, and and the poetry of of a reigning horse, um, right. because it is it is terribly exciting. If it wasn't. Taylor Sheridan wouldn't have been able to put together that run for a million thing. You know, nobody, nobody'd watch it. If nobody watched it, it wouldn't work. But obviously that was a successful event. And now he owns a bunch of successful Rainin horses and the Rainin fraternity would never pay $350,000 if there weren't a lot of people that liked it. <laughs> right. Absolutely right. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, I, I think, I think Taylor Sheridan in, in one, one man is going to do as much for reigning as anybody's ever done for it. Cause I think he's just getting warmed up. Just my opinion. I don't have any inside information. Just, just a guess is that, that he's going to continue to dump gas on that fire. Um, and make reigning pretty, pretty amazing in the, in the very near future. Well, you know, like anybody else that's good at what they do, there's a lot of people don't like him and don't even know him. And I don't know him either, but whenever they say anything negative, I say, hey, this guy's the greatest thing since Roy Rogers. I said, kids have not had a role model follow in the Western Horse Division for 
30 or 40 years. And now we've got this man out there putting on sh TV shows that kids are watching. And the cowboy is something that a lot of them will want to be now. And we have seen that. And that, that's the greatest thing that could happen to the horse industry is Taylor Sheridan. I, I wholeheartedly think so. I wholeheartedly, I, I, I think he's, and I, and I've listened to him a couple of hours of him talking with Andrea Papani right. on, on Andrea's show. And I've got, from what I've learned from that, I, I have nothing but respect for the gentleman. I, I think he's, he really is the, he's the real thing. Um, you know, he's well, not he, he was a commentator out there at Scottsdale part, part of the time during the raining, you know? Right. And he got, the guy, coach, he's got to be smart to be in his position. They have, but the guy's getting pretty sharp on raining horses. You know, I mean, he's, guy's no dummy about raining. He's got pretty well figured out by now. Well, yeah, I, I know he, he put, can't do he what he wants. a lot of effort do, into it. But he, but he can see, he knows what he sees. You know what I'm right, saying? Right. Right. And putting, Putting raining front and center in the in the the TV show Yellowstone, <clears throat> just that alone made a you know made a huge impact. I think on on America. Yeah, um, I yeah. don't think most people had no, any idea. Not America, the world. Correct, correct. Um, the million yeah. dollar rider, all that stuff put together. That's it's on TV all over the world. What this guy is doing, he's renewing. We well, sure making it easier generation. for me to sell horses. I'll, I'll tell you that. Yeah, I, 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 I'm getting more money for horses now than ever. Yeah. Instead of playing with their uh, Game Boy or whatever, now they're thinking I, I might like to be out there on a horse. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. The the, the demand is through the roof. Right. So so Larry, if if we were going to put a put a billboard out out in, in hometown Ohio for you and you could have anything on that billboard. What what would you want what would you want on that billboard? You can't make chicken salad out of chicken shit no matter how much mayonnaise you got. <laughs> now that is a fact. Absolutely a fact. That's what I use when people say how how good a horse do you have to have? Does it take a good horse? It's real simple. You can't make chicken shit out of chicken salad out of chicken shit, no matter how much mayonnaise you got. Well, that that is that is some sincere wisdom right there. Um, <laughs> so, so what are your? You, you mentioned you've got a horse in the Congress fraternity this year. Yes. So obviously that's one of your goals for this coming year. What, what yeah. else is 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 on on the plate for for Larry Rose this year? Oh, I'll tell you what. Uh, in my lifetime, I've gotten to know so many people. So many people have got to know me. I never know what's going to happen next week. You know what I mean? I mean, somebody might call me and say, hey, I've got, I'll fly out here, look at this horse and sit on, tell me if it's what I think it is. Or somebody might call me and say, uh, I've got a really great horse, but I'm in a bad situation. I need to sell it, you know, and cheap. And I, I, you know, I'll go look at that horse. I, I don't know what I'm going to do next week. But I know I'm not going to do it very long because I got to get back and ride this horse. And right. I got him about a month ahead, purposely. Just that I did that with most of mine. But you know, in case something happens, I'm I'm okay. Or if I have to be gone a little longer than I think I should be, but uh, you know. So I what's know. your what's your help situation like, Larry? Are you do you have do you have you know young people riding colts for you, or are you pretty much doing all your own riding? I don't ride them till grandma can ride them. You know, somebody else and, and can. I, I try to get the owners to send them. If I take, I only take two or three, you know, a year to ride. 
I've side horses, and I've usually got one to my own. Uh, I get the owners to send somebody to get them dead broke before. I'm not going to get on something that I got to wrestle with. So, so you don't you don't have a you don't have a bunch of young young guys or young young women riding no. folks for you at the ranch. I know no, a I've lot got, of my associates are are that's the bane of their existence is trying to get barn help. No, but I have probably two of those young people a week come up here from wherever spend the day riding with me i'll be talking to them helping them summon i don't charge them anything you know i just try to give back to the reigning deal what it's done for me you know what what the what the masters taught you when you were when you were trying to figure things out right 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 right. i try to help them along maybe sometimes just giving them a positive attitude helps you more than anything and a second set of eyes yeah yeah like i know what this feels like but what does it look like right right or I might get on their horse and do it, and then they can see what it looks like. Right. Sure. And I might change it a little bit. I might spend a half an hour changing a little bit, do it for them again, and they, they'll see the difference in it. And if, if they don't see the difference in it, they're not going to make it. And if they see the difference in it, they're probably going to grab it and do it that way. So is there – and I ask this question a couple different ways, but I think this way makes makes some sense is – is there a question that you would like somebody to ask? Um, a question you'd like to answer that nobody seems to be smart enough to ask you? Um, I guess is a fancy way of saying, you know, what what would you like to tell people that that they may or may not want to hear, but they need to. If I if if they could understand it, when they ask me what's the secret to success in reigning, my answer would be to do the common thing uncommonly well. It's that simple. I try to simplify things, you know. Don't try to take things and make them look different or this or that. Just do the common thing uncommonly well. And that wins yesterday, today, and tomorrow. In pretty much every part of life, right? Yes. But that always wins, whether it was 40 years ago or 40 years from now. The common thing uncommonly well will took the trigger. Well, well, Larry, this is this has been an honor and a pleasure, and... And I'd, I'd like to continue, but I am going to have to go feed horses here. Um, and I, I hope, I hope you for all, all the success that that you could have at the Congress this coming this coming fall. Um, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure everybody's worried about you showing up there because they they don't want to lose money. But <laughs> I guess I guess you just want to get beat by a seventy-three year old man. <laughs> Well, I forget how old how old Gary Bellenfont was in Gary was seventy one when he did that. So you know, and and there's <laughs> he he was he sets the horse as good as 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 any man alive seventy one or or seventeen. So I guess I guess that age is just a number, really. It is to the per you know I mean you know people horses are like people and people are like you know it just depends on. Depends on your genetics. I mean, other than my spinal deal, I'm 100%. You know, I mean, I get blood work done every six months, and I'm right. I don't have one one number out of line. So, but I keep well, myself you, fit. You know, you stay. Yeah, you you stay you stay fit, and, and you can look at look at Gary. I mean, he's he's pretty he's in pretty good shape. I mean, you can see he rides for a living. Yeah, and that was one of the most that. His run was an example of what I'm saying. Teach the horse to teach himself. Right. That horse had, you know, some 
a lot of today's show horses, a lot of them operate under intimidation. Okay. But mine don't and Gary's don't. Buster's don't and a lot of others don't. But uh, that run of his on that roan horse, I've watched it ten times. Just because so I, I've watched that live and I was I was screaming my lungs out. I was just to watch to watch somebody trot out of the herd out behind the cow, take one yeah. off the back fence and trot out and dump drop his hand. I, and, I that, was, and he got the exact cow he was looking yeah, for. Yeah, that right wasn't that wasn't. Oh, hey, there's a cow. That was no. This is the son of a gun we're going to put out there and we're going to work this cow. Yep. Um and and, and it I was heard so pure. It, it, I, I called it pure. Just so pure to watch, you know. And and what I heard was that. Well, he told, I forget who he, I talked to somebody that talked to him about that. And he says, you know, I just ranched on that horse. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that was just his, that was just his favorite horse is what that was. Yep. As I understand it. Yeah. And well, I, you know, he, he had know to Gary well, but way more than I do, but he had I'm to work just, in I'm just a fan. at some point, you know, and, and I would say the horse probably had what you would call uh conventional cutting training he probably had three months of that just so he understood fences and <laughs> right and turn back men and so on and so forth but all the others they're getting 20 months of conventional training they're not they're not out there trailing cattle for six hours or you know well you, you roping might, them and you dragging might. them to the fire and ran them and stuff like right. that like that horse did so but that, that, all that stuff makes them mentally mature. And that, and he said something about that horse being really mature mentally. And that, that, that makes him an older horse, you know. Well, now, I don't know if this is true, but I was always told as a young kid that when, that when Doc Alina won the Futurity, uh, Shorty only had not quite a year's riding on that horse. Uh-huh. That, that he was really, he was kind of held back for a year. And so, he didn't, he didn't really get started till, till he was three. And it just was like, a, I think he was a December Colt. Is that true? No, that was Doc Lynch. Doc's Lynch. Okay. <clears throat> but Doc Alina, Shorty, uh, worked for a very wealthy man here in Cleveland, Ohio for a couple of years. And I trained the guys raining horses and he trained the guys cutting horses. So. I was going up there off and on. Shorty and I got to be good friends. Bill was 19 at the time, and he used to spend summers with Shorty up there. But Shorty's got so much patience, he can, he can put a week's training on a horse in one ride and never pressure him. Now, I'll, I'll tell you, <laughs> I'll tell you a true story that tells you about his patience because it's kind of funny. You know, he died from emphysema and used to smoke five packs of cigarettes, six packs of cigarettes a day. Right. Anyway. I was up there one day, and it was lunchtime, and Bill and I were getting hungry. Shorty was sitting on a horse that was overactive on a cow. It was just, when the cow was standing there, it was trying to do something. So he got an old dead cow out. I don't mean physically dead, you know, just an old burner. Didn't want to move. It was just going to stand there, and he's going to stand there in front of it with his horse for a while. He said, I said, Shorty, we're going in and go to lunch. You want to go now? He said, no. He said, I'll be in a little bit. So Bill and I went and ate lunch. Waited about an hour and Shorty never showed up, so we went back. Went back. <laughs> he was in the exact same spot he was when he left. And by the horse's left front foot, there was a whole pile of cigarette butts. 
And I said, Shorty, you all right? He says, I need a cigarette. <laughs> but that's how much patience he had, Matt. That was probably the biggest key to Shorty's success, and he was a great, great pet dog trainer. Well, that, that's that's what I was always, you know, I I I, I never got to meet him. I, I got to become friends with Bill, but you know, I never never got to meet his dad. But the the stories I've heard of of, of Mr. Freeman were much much like that. He just right, you know. But Buster tells wonderful Shorty Freeman stories. And yeah, and Buster, I stayed with Buster for a couple of weeks, two years ago, and uh, in ways he admitted or let me know that he thought Shorty was his equal. That's quite a compliment from from Buster Welch. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, I, I would, I would, I would take. You know, Buster would just say, "Well, he's okay." You know, to me that'd be, <laughs> I'd take that as a huge compliment coming from him. So, not not like that's going to happen, but. Yeah, just to to have him admit that that he's as good, you know, that guy's as good as I am. You, you're not going to get any more than that. You know, uh, Don Dodge. He uh, he's married seven times, but he's always married wealthy women, and they bought you know Fizzabar and Popolini. All those horses won twenty, thirty thousand before he ever saw them. You know what I mean? Right. So I I was talking to Buster one day, and I said, "What do you think about?" And he, Buster never said anything bad about anybody. He said, what do you think about uh, Don Dodge as a horse trainer? He said, oh, Don Dodge was a great horseman, a great horse trainer. He, said, he could train circus horses. He could train stock horses. He could train jumping horses. Yeah, I, I didn't say cutting horses, did I? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's that, that's it. I I I. I I absolutely dread the day that we don't have Mr. Welch still still with us because his his stories are are some of some of my favorite. When I was in my I was in my twenties, early twenties, he did a Buster did a uh, a one hour video on VHS cassette of uh, of a clinic or not a clinic but a demonstration that he did at Texas A and M. And they, he had him in, in whatever arena they had there. He was working some of his colts and some of his older horses. And, and he put on a show. And, and basically it was a comedy show because all he really did was tell stories. And, and it was, it was the most enjoyable thing to watch. Mm-hmm. But the important thing about it was, was that while he was telling these stories, everything that he said, really truly did relate to how to work with a horse right right um and and it's just if once you got over that and you started thinking about what he said two days later you're like well that's what he well you might figure it out (laughs) shoot you know and and watching him work a horse he's so smooth working a horse you know so soft and smooth you never see any commotion or cowboy in or anything you know he's just so smooth when he works a horse yeah I, I remember when i was a teenager the the year he campaigned little peppy for the world mm-hmm. um we have a have in 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 the boise valley a, a little town called caldwell and they have a prca rodeo caldwell night rodeo and it's and it's probably the best rodeo in idaho um the certainly the best stock and the best cowboys come to it but as a pre-rodeo show that year, they had a $5 added open cutting. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a, it's a full-size rodeo arena. Like 
190 by 300 long. Uh-huh. And they run, uh-huh. run 50 head of cattle in there. And, and Buster had little Peppy and, and Bobby Nelson was campaigning Doc and Willie for the world at the same time. Uh-huh. And, and Buster marked a 75 five nights a row. Bobby Nelson was a 74 right, right, right at his heels. But Buster was one point better every night. Uh-huh. And, and I still remember as a 57 year old man, you know, at that time, I think I was 16. I still remember watching Buster and little Peppy work a cow at the Caldwell Night Radio. And there, oh. I've never seen anything like it. That can, that horse could, would do whatever was required to keep that cow in the middle of the arena. It was, it was like nothing I'd ever seen. And Buster'd make a, Buster'd make a stand and cut. I mean, and this, like he was big, the arena is big enough that it's like they were working outside. And Buster'd cut him a cow standing, you know, with 40 head of cattle in there. He'd cut him, cut him one stand and then go get another one. Yep. And, you know, it's just a master at it. My gosh. I, I, I just, and that, that really back, that's what, I mean, I was kind of ranch raised, but that hooked me on this cutting deal and ruined the rest of my life. I've never, mm-hmm. I've never ever really gotten it out of my system. Enough about me, but anyway, I get, well, I get one of those things that I really like is uh, a bad cow cut good is a lot better than a good cow cut bad. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I, I, I kid him, but I, I call him riddles once in a while because, you know, he talks in riddles most of the time. Yes. He don't give you anything. You know, you got, he, he likes to think and he likes to teach people to think and he told me one time he said i can teach people anything but i can't teach them to think but he said i sure do try <laughs> yes that's and that's I, I i think that's probably one of the things that makes him so endearing to all of us is that that he does he does make you think right you know, he's not going to just tell you what to do he's going to tell you how to think and then when you do figure it out you're you're gonna you're gonna be thankful, but you're not gonna be mad that he just told you to do this. You know, well, but I'm doing this because Buster says this is what you do. Well, he he gives you Buster gives you principles. That was a the thing that I kind of started me off on the principle thing was that in that that first video I watched of him, he talked about principles about you know one of the stories he tells is about a about a cowboy that. Uh, uh, roped a bull and got drug off his horse and and uh, uh, this uh, bull chased him and he'd run in this hole and jump in the hole and the uh-huh. bull would run over the top of the hole and he'd, he'd jump out of the hole and the bear would turn around come back and he'd jump back in the hole and the bull would go over and he'd jump back out and one of the fellow cowboys watching from the ridge is watching this and comes down and runs the bull off and, and uh, asks the cowboy, he says well he says, why didn't you just stay in that hole? And and the cowboy says, well, I can't. There's a there's a bear in that hole. And, and Buster <laughs> was telling was telling this whole story about how if a horse isn't doing what you think they ought to be doing, make right. sure there isn't a bear in that hole. <laughs> yeah, no, so he right. w- he wouldn't answer the question about what to do about this horse, you know, running off. Right. He would just tell you that story. Right. Yep. Very intelligent man. Reads a lot. You know, I mean, he ran away from home when he was 13. I don't know what grade that'd be. Fifth grade, sixth grade, something like that. You know, he had no formal education, but he's, his vocabulary and his way of thinking is unbelievable. But 
And I mean, he knows a lot about a lot of, you know, whether it's World War Two or the history of this or that, or you know, he he studies other people to better himself. Yes, sir. I'm go- I'm gonna miss him when we when when we when we don't have him. I'm gonna miss him terribly. Everybody is. Well, Larry, terrible. it has been an honor speaking with you tonight. I've um, enjoyed it. I I just I just it, it makes it makes me feel so good that that you would take the time to to share with me. I'm I'm nobody in this world, but. I, nobody's I do think nobody. there's a lot of people that need to hear what you have to say, um, you know, because none of us are going to be around forever. But, you know, this this digital recording is going to survive me and you both. Um, you know, once we put it out there, it's going to it's going to stay there. If um, it helps one person, it was worthwhile. Absolutely. Absolutely, sir. Well, again, I thank you. And it was an honor. And and. Hopefully, I will see you. I will see you at a show sometime. Oh, we'll I'm run across each other person. somewhere. <laughs> All and right, I enjoyed have... it. I appreciate you having me on your deal here. Have a great evening, sir. Okay, you too. Good night. Good night. Wow, I hope our listeners enjoyed that as much as I did. Thank you so much for joining me on Horse Sense One Hundred and One, a podcast dedicated to helping you have that meaningful relationship with your horse you always wanted to have. Please tell your horsey friends about us and invite them to join us on our Facebook group, Horse Sense 101, and every Monday for our podcast available at 6 a.m. Mountain Time. Thank you again, Mr. Rose, for sharing your time with us. I am also grateful for you, my listeners, and my wife and friends who helped make this podcast possible. God bless you all, and have a wonderful rest of your week. The Mustang still runs free. soars above the pinion pine. Horses stand for something that is precious and more rare than all the silver and the gold from them old mines. So let them run, let them run. Let them wild ponies run. Don't you brand them, don't you break them. Don't you let the killers take a single one. Let them run.